Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Cheryl Lynn's Got to Be Real, Steely Dan's Black Friday, Toto's Georgie Porgy, all some of the most monster keyboard piano grooves of all time. And they all have at least one man in common. That's prolific musician and songwriter David Paish. David honed his chops early growing up in L.A., where he worked under the tutelage of his father, Marty Pache, an esteemed composer who worked with artists like Mel Torme, Ray Charles, and even Ella Fitzgerald. While in college at USC, David started playing keyboard professionally and touring with Sonny and Cher. From there, he went on to co-write and play on Boz Skaggs' multi-platinum album, Silk Degrees. He also worked extensively with Quincy Jones, playing on multiple iconic albums, including Michael Jackson's Thriller and Bad. All throughout his work as a session musician, David also served as Toto's principal songwriter and wrote chart-topping hits like Rosanna, Hold the Line, and, of course, most famously, Africa. On today's episode, I talked to David Paish about what it was like to be such an accomplished player at such a young age. He shares crazy stories about working with Michael Jackson and Quincy on Thriller and how he came up with the intro to Michael Jackson's Human Nature, probably the greatest keyboard riff of all time. David also plays parts from some of the best songs he's written and talks about how they came to be. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's my conversation with David Pache. A few weeks ago, I was on a run and Cheryl Lynn's Got To Be Real came on when yeah. I was on my run. And I was, I was like, that's the perfect groove. Like the keyboard yeah. is the perfect groove. I was like, I gotta go home and learn that. So I went home and I just started messing around. <laughs> I was like, who, who, who played on this? I, didn't, yeah. I had no idea and I looked it up and 
It was you. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? This it was guy me, does everything. Me and Ray Parker helped me put the rhythm section together. We got Gadsden and a guy that just moved out from Detroit and played on the Emotions record named David Shields. And that was like the last record he did was like, got to be real kind of thing. But that was a great rhythm section. And uh, we cut that. And uh, it's one of the, my favorite uh, R&B things that I've ever done. You know what I mean? Do, do you mind playing just the, the, uh, the, sure. the riff? I'll show you. The song started this way with me coming in with the riff. And Cheryl started singing a little bit. And then David Foster came in. And we were I was in uh, Sunset Sound. And he came in and played a little B section for me. You know, but the riff goes... his groove man. yeah then i heard a mariah carey song that sounds like it sounds just about like uh, got to be real she's got a song out where this came out right after that really it sounded like got to be real yeah did same you, changes did you no. reach out no 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 man like it's all good you know your dad was a producer on that right he was co-producer we co-produced that together he kind of discovered her you know what i mean it's 1978 1978 you're right and you're called in by your, your dad sets the my song? dad made a call to someone at Sony, which was CBS at the time. And so I just heard this girl, he had a friend that worked, uh, uh, Butler, I forget what his first name, was the, the jazz department at Sony. And my dad called him and said, I just heard this girl in the gong show, Cheryl Lynn. And, I, and he says, well, funny enough, we're trying to do an album with her right now. And they'd cut some cuts with her. And so they gave it to my dad. My dad, I was had come off of Silk Degrees with Boz Skaggs. So my dad said, well, if I team up with David, let's co-produce this thing. So we ended up co-producing her first album, you know? Wow. And David Foster is a part of that? He's a part of that. He came in just for a second. I was at Sunset Sound, and Foster just came over to hear what we were doing. And I said, I'm working on this song, Got To Be Real. So, you know, he went, and I went, and he did. You know, you know. So when you're called in to work on a song like that, or I mean, obviously you, this, you're a bigger part of this project in general. But when you're yeah. working on a song like yeah. that, how did that riff come to be? Like, how did? Uh, well, I heard uh, it was kind of influenced by the motions to the song called "Best of My Love." Yes, and I heard. And I like that beat, but I always like putting the, the hump in it, you know. You know, and I had Gadsden on drums, you know what I mean? He just killed it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And at the same time, after I found that out, I was looking at the year 78, and I realized at the same time that that record is huge. Yeah. You're putting out Toto's first, first record. Yeah, first album. And, and consequently... Cheryl sang on Georgie Porgy. Georgie Porgy, which I never knew that was her. Yeah, that was her. She just came in because we weren't going to put the song on because I'd get to the part, I'd sing it, Georgie Porgy, put, and it was just like white bread. You know what I mean? <laughs> and Cheryl Lynn heard it, and she goes, well, let me sing that. And she goes, Georgie Porgy, put, and put, kiss the girls. And we crossed over under the R&B market. With, yeah. It sold like a million copies, man. Yeah, you know? man. So do you remember writing that song, Georgie Porgy? 
Yeah. I was listening to a lot of uh, dance music. I was listening to a lot of Barry White because hmm. he had started his stuff with piano. And I was listening to Quincy Jones on the I Want You album with Marvin Gaye. Yeah. And because uh, my friend... Uh, is that Leon, Leon Ware? Ware? Yeah. Leon Ware was a friend of my dad's. And I'd written something with Leon Ware. And I was very influenced by that album. It had Chuck Rainey and Gadsden yeah. on it, and those guys. And, Beautiful sound. Uh, I Want You, you know what I mean? And it was very much that. And I went. It's kind of Barry White thing. Yeah. Remember when Barry White did? You know, it's kind of came out of that era. You know what I mean? Amazing. This is your first album with Toto. Yeah. Now you're accomplished. We'll talk about it. But you I mean you played yeah. on so many records yeah. throughout the '70s? Yeah. How are you thinking about writing this song? I mean, you have that wonderful piece. You maybe have that second part, that Barry White yeah, sounding right. piece. How are you right. putting it together? The lyrics. That's just because I've learned through to get the form of a song right to have a verse, a B section, and a chorus, and then kind of an maybe an instrumental or, or a bridge. And I'm not a big fan of bridges. I just like verse, chorus, instrumental, and take it out. You no know bridge I mean? for you, huh? Bridge, because people, well, they kind of throw bridges away. Yeah. I like the Beatles and Elton and those guys, when they write a bridge, it's like it lifts the song, yeah. which is what a bridge should do to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know? At what point would you take a song like that to the rest of the group? Right as soon as we start gotten our deal, and I've been playing this a little bit, uh, song a little bit with Jeff. We, we, we go and do sessions together. And on the breaks, when everybody else was out of the room, I'd start playing these things, and Jeff would get into the groove. So we rehearsed a lot of our album on other people's records. Really? You know what I mean? Playing, just jamming on them when there's breaks or no one's in the room or whatever, you know? So when I got to the record, I had like two or three things already cooking, you know what I mean? How did you, how did you guys get your deal? <laughs> Interesting. We never had to perform live to get our deal. We're the only, like the only group, and the only group that got to produce itself. We had people named Don Ellis, vice president of CBS, and a guy named Terry Powell. And after we'd done the uh, Boss Skaggs record, Silk Degrees, there was a lot of spotlight on us because we were the rhythm section for that whole record. Yeah. And then we came and went out on the road with them too and toured with Boss. And so CBS was like, well, why don't you guys form a band? And we had already been planning this whole thing since high school to put a, our band back together, high school band. So we were like, oh, good idea, you guys. And we just, we started working on demos then. And uh, I did Miss Sun for a demo, which was Boz Gag's song, yeah. uh, a song I wrote for Boz. And we just did uh, some demos and uh, I started writing more, you know, getting into my writing and it just happened. And you because know? you guys were so adept in the studio, they were totally comfortable letting you guys just Absolutely. take the reins, produce. Yeah, they were let, letting us do whatever we wanted to do, you know. Wow. You know? What does it feel like to be you in 1978? I mean, Georgie Porgy's on the radio. Hold, hold the, the lines yeah, on the radio. The yes. Yeah, it was great. The Got first, to be reels on the, the radio. The first time we heard ourselves on the radio, we we all called each other so fast on the radio. I was at my sister's apartment, and I heard this thing piano. I heard, and I said, that sounds really familiar. I said, it sounds like me. It actually sounds like me playing. Oh, Fuck, that's our record. It's on the radio. And every we were all calling the radio stations, requesting it and shit like that. <laughs> like teenagers, you know what I mean? 
And did it feel different with it actually being your group, yes. your song versus yes. you playing on? And we were like, we were like screaming kids, you know what I mean? Oh my God, I can't believe it. We were trying calling each other and all the lines were busy because we were all calling each other. <laughs> calling each other, calling the radio. Calling. That's right. I'll call them all of our friends to request the song. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because back then, if you had people called in enough, they'd add it to the station, you know? What station were you guys first getting played on? KJR up in Seattle. There was a guy named Steve West, who was a friend of our managers, because our managers had managed Chicago and Rufus. Amazing. That's what they had. And so they knew program directors all around the United States. So this guy, they hopped on it. And as soon as a P1, which is the top radio stations, or P1s, as soon as he went on it, it broke. And everybody went on it. You know, and it ended up going double platinum, the record. Obviously, if you listen to that first record, it's pretty clear you guys are fluent musically. Like you can play anything. I was always curious if on the label side or manager side, was there ever any like, well, guys, like Hold the Line feels very different from Georgie Porgy. Absolutely. They were like, there's a lot of the comments where there's no thread. You guys don't have a sound. What is your sound? We can't tell you if you're an R&B group or you're a rock and roll group or adult contemporary group what what are you we just said this is it this is what we are we yeah. do all this stuff yeah you know what i mean because to your point georgie porgy feels like a song that would have like you know i mean the way they grouped things back then that would have been like a song would have been a huge hit on on black radio that's and then right hold the that's line right. there's no way that would have ever right. played on you know You're totally right you know what i mean it was all thought of like that you know but uh, we that's why we wanted to be different we wanted to just do what uh, good music of any kind, any genre, you know? When you guys started going out on that record, what were you noticing about your audience? Was it growing over time? Over it the was, two- it was. A little bit, you know, we had to, we uh, waited until we had, again, the, the double platinum album before we went out and started touring a little bit, you know? That was and- uncommon then, too. I mean, that's a common occurrence now that someone has this huge album or huge song and then has to go figure out how to go do a live that's show. right that's right less common then yeah less common then yeah you had to kind of work your way up and make an audience but the thing happened we it broke in europe and we didn't know what europe was all about europe in amsterdam there was a guy named big al who was the dj there and he broke i think hold the line there in amsterdam and europe just went nuts like beetle crazy nuts over this stuff so when we did a, a promotional tour there, they took us around to all the clubs where they were playing our music. And it was just like, it was great. You know what I mean? There was just so many people screaming and everything like that. But that he broke our record. And then we started getting offers for gigs with good money back then to come in and, and play shows, wow. you know, to headline and wow. shit over in uh, Europe and wow. stuff. So Europe has just been a big cash cow and a great long multi-generational audience for us since then and they never even you cannot have a hit record for a long time and they're still becoming your concerts and stuff yeah. like that very loyal fans and great music audiences over in europe you had your your like an, an incredible career as a as a studio guy yeah. at the time were you thinking for sure that that first record was going to be what it was that it would have the the popular... we were planning on it we were we were we always had confidence in ourselves this is one thing toto did we knew what we could do yeah. if we got the chance you know what i mean so you guys were ready to become the main show in yeah, other words yeah yeah we were shooting for the big time the whole time so tell me a bit about growing up what were your first encounters with music? i grew up in reseda until i was five and uh my father i remember my father playing piano he had a piano room there he did all of his writing and i remember hearing 
the blues in the night in there. My mom and told me, you know, Blues of the Night. He had done a version with Ella Fitzgerald and Mel Torme. And so that was the first song that I picked out on the piano. Wow. My dad heard me picking it out. So he said, do you, you know how to play that? Then I started taking piano lessons and stuff. That's when you knew that I had uh, some kind of gift, you know. And, and you were a kid kid at that yeah, point. Yeah, I was like five. Five. Okay. Wow. And, but I didn't start studying piano until I was eight because I got into drums. My dad was using a drummer named Shelly Mann. Shelly Mann just did a whole bunch of things with Bill Evans, and he did all the Mancini stuff. Yeah. He had the Shelly the Man and the Manhole, uh, his club. But I used to sit next to him and just watch him play drums, and that's all I could think about. 24 hours a day was drums. Wow. And then I started getting more serious about uh, piano when my dad said, you know, if you, you have to get your technique together or you're not going to be able to make it. So I got a warning. I got a wake-up call early, and by the time I was 12, I started studying classical music. My dad put me with a classical teacher, and I started, you know, going through all the literature and stuff like that. Were you into it at that time? Get, no. Get into the class? No. No. Okay. No. But I knew I wanted to be a professional musician, so I was like, whatever it takes. You, this is the road I'm going down? Fine. Even if it feels like it's taking you further away yeah. from the Even stuff Even if it's like want. it's hard and it has nothing to do with rock and jazz, <laughs> Yeah. you know? But I knew that my dad said, Oscar Peterson studied classical. All these guys studied classical, you know? So if you want to play like Oscar, you better... Spend the time, you know? I feel like a lot of times kids want to buck their parents or, you know, my dad was a played football, and so I oh, wanted great. nothing to do with football, you know? Was he professional? He he did play professionally for a bit and got injured, but cool, yeah. Cool, man. Yeah. I'm a big NFL nut. Everyone is, and I'm not, just honestly, because, because it, was, your dad, it was just too much. It was just like everything was centered Everything was football. like, oh, yeah, I bet. Like, I bet you were just smothered, smothered with that smothered shit. Smothered with it. And I was just like, you know, I want to go. I want to go do music or whatever. Yeah. I mean, what do you think it is about your relationship with your dad that allowed you to to connect with him with what he does professionally? Well, because I, I love music, and I was a very quiet kid. And when you had to be quiet in those days. You couldn't talk at all. When the music studio with my dad, there is no talking log with musicians or anything like that. You have to be, a, like, it was a deaf mute. You know what I mean? So me and my dad got along real great, and uh, he showed me how to do things, you know, We and we watched football and baseball together and stuff, but he was always working. So the first job I had, Joseph Williams and I talk about this all the time, because my dad was peers with John Williams. They were good friends. Joseph and I talk about our first jobs as, as students to them were sharpening his pencils and making sure they didn't run out of erasers. That's what job. You sit in a room all day long, not say a word, and just hear you hear on sharpening pencils in the room, like all day long. Amazing. <laughs> That's Amazing. what we did. Then I finally started, I started singing a few things. My dad goes, Can sing me a line here for this. And I'd sing a line in an arrangement, and he'd use it, you know what I As mean? As he was composing or arranging for... He was for... composing and arranging for the Fifth Dimension. He did Up, Up, and Away for them. Yeah. You know, he did the way, produced and arranged The Way We Were for Barbra Streisand. And all these big orchestral things, you know, so... And I got to help him on those arrangements, you know. Once you got to a certain level, would he show you how he approached yes. those things? Absolutely. Yeah, he I got him and he had a master's degree in music composition. So he knew how to teach me, but he never stopped writing. He was a writing machine like John Williams, same thing, a yeah. writing machine. You know, all they do you just see him writing pen, pencil to paper, you know. And uh 
it's amazing what those guys can that knew because of their classical training how that would translate to orchestra. Yeah. You know, when you just have a piano, guys who now because they can play a synth, they can play a string sound, they can play a flute sound. And you can hear, oh, that'll work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where back then they just had pianos. Yeah. You know, yeah. they didn't have samplers and all that stuff. You know, so my dad taught me. Literally, I was his apprentice for twenty years. You know. My gosh, did, it was great. Did he have any like maxims or things he would always return to, or things he'd always tell you, like things oh, he'd yeah. return to? My dad had lots of rules. Yeah, <laughs> probably like your dad had some rules. Yeah, you know dad's what I mean? good good about that. Yeah, my dad was like, you know, hey, the melody, the singer is the most important part. Make sure you can hear the melody, the singer, the singer is the, the whole thing, the singer and the song, you know. And you're you're just servicing the singer, you know. That's great. Lesson. And he worked with just great singers, you know, uh, Lena Horn. Uh, Sammy Davis, Jesse Belvin, uh, Ella, Sarah Vaughn, Ray Charles. I mean, er everyone. Insane. Yeah. At what point did you realize the talent, level of talent your dad was working with? I, I didn't until we would start, we would start going to shows at the Greek theater and Sammy Davis would be there or somebody like that. And they'd introduce my dad and put a spotlight on him in the audience. And I went, wow, my dad would stand up, everybody would be applauding for him. You know, and once I heard that, I was that's pretty cool. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just be a kid and you're Sam yeah. Davis Jr. And everybody school. respects your dad. That's the whole thing. All the adults who worked for my dad were super nice to me. They treated me like I was an adult. And they were all dressed so cool. They dressed like, all the dressing guys came from like Ellington's band. The way those guys would, gold cuff links and loose ties yeah. and hats on. And lots of jewelry and all this stuff, you know, where I was like, I was looking at my school teachers like, this is boring right here. You know, I'd go with my dad's guys. And they're all dressed sharp and they're super nice and smoking cigarettes, doing shit, you know. So it was a cool existence. It was like the jazz area. Jazz area was still there. My dad was still making jazz records with singers at the time. So I got to see that crossover yeah. when I was a kid. We have to pause for a quick break, and then we'll come back with more of my conversation with David Pache. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with the Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more from David Pache. You told me when you were four, before we started recording that you were 14 when you, when you met Quincy Jones for the first yeah, time? Yeah, I was 14 when I met Quincy. My dad was working on a, one of Quincy's solos album, and I forget the name of the album, but the song was called The Anderson Files, and it was a Sean Connery movie that had come out. Quincy had done the music for it. Well, Quincy used to throw my dad, have my dad ghost for him, ghost arrange. And my dad did a couple charts for him, and I got to help my dad with those charts. Uh, I'll sing a couple lines to him, you know. Really? And uh, so I went to Quincy's house, and you know, I think it was Benedict Canyon at the time. I think he lived there in Bel Air. And anyway, I met him, and, uh, you know, I've, I ended up working for him later on the Thriller album and, and James Ingram and Patty Austin, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. But, so it was, he's been, we've been family members, Qu- Quincy, with us for since I was a kid, you know. So crazy. So you, you, you're a kid, and you're immersed in this world of jazz. Yeah. Through your father and yeah. through like, just your interest too, and you're learning and Oscar Peterson's yeah. heroes. You're picking up classical music, trying to get ready. And then the seventies hit, and you start doing some incredible sessions, like really young. Yeah, the first hit record I did was Seals and Crofts' "Diamond Girl." Okay, that was the very that was one of the first sessions, but that was the first hit record I had. And once I had that, the word got around. And I started getting calls for sessions. You know? I heard a story about you being at USC. That was me. That was that was during that time. And yeah. you got a call from uh, uh, you... Jackson Brown. Jackson me. Brown. And it was so funny because it was like USC at the time in the dorm I was in, which is an all boy dorm. It was like Animal House. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were guys showing movies, throwing parties and shit. And, and there was only the phone at the time. No one had cell phones. It was a pay phone in the hallway. And a guy knocks on my door, and I'm in the room doing something. I forget. And uh, he says, there's a guy named Jackson Brown on the phone for you. I go, oh, don't hang up on him. And I got in the hallway, and he goes like, where the hell are you at? It sounds, you know, because people are screaming and doing all kinds of shit. And he says, we want you to come down and play on uh, on his For Every Man record down at Sunset. And I played on a song called These Days for one Jackson Brown. One of his incredible signature songs that he wrote yeah. when he was a kid and yeah. Nico did. And yeah, then he, and yeah. Then he John did his... Haney was there at, at, at uh, Sunset Sound, you know? Wow. And uh, it was cool. When you turn up, when you're coming from the environment that you were my coming out of yeah. and you're driving then down to the studio. I was like, no switch. I was like, had my jacket, my jeans on. It's like where I used to just stay in my clothes, you know what I mean? How often would you walk into a session like that and have to play on something you weren't too into? Quite a bit. Uh, I started weeding out those sessions, though. Whenever was, I wasn't a great reader. I'm not a great reader. There's guys that sight read, and that's their job, yeah. what they do. A guy I learned from, Mike Lang, who was one of the best. He did all Jerry Goldsmith stuff. So I would start to go, to how much reading is involved, I'd have to ask, because my dad told me to do that, because he would have to do the same thing. John Williams was the guy you'd call if you want sight read stuff. And my dad would just play, do sessions with jazz guys, 
where the reading wasn't too terribly hard, you know? Right. So I got a reputation for playing being a rock and roll player and an R&B player. I started working at Motown when I was 18 with uh, Motown out in the West Coast called Mo West. Wow. And uh, so we did all these orchestral dates with rhythm section, two drummers, and everything. It was live music doing stuff. We did some stuff for Thelma Houston and Diana Ross and some of the Jacksons, you know? Oh, my gosh, man. I mean, obviously, you've got the talent and everything, yeah. but what luck, too, because it feels like the 70s, really, like to your point of now there's Mo West. Yeah. It's yeah. like the business really seemed to be coming out It really this did. Way. I mean, it was thriving, the, the session industry and songwriters and doing all this kind of stuff. I hadn't hit as a songwriter yet, but uh, that led up to uh, Jeff introduced me to Boss Skaggs. Yeah. who Because Jeff and I, Boss had been producing a guitarist that was with the Allman Brothers named Les Dudek. And they needed an organ player. So I played Hammond pretty good. And uh, uh, we went out and we did that album with Boz producing. And Boz liked how he played. So he asked me if I wanted to maybe co-write an album. He was looking for a co-writer. He'd never co-written with anybody. And uh, so I said, hell yeah. And we sat down. And I think it was on this piano uh, up at Santa Barbara. My dad had a ranch up there. We stayed there for two weeks and wrote like most of the stuff on Silk Degrees album wow. on piano. You know? Wow. And that album just took off. That album was like a pinnacle, you know, watershed album. Yeah, you know? low down. I mean, yeah, uh, Lido. Lido. You know, <sighs> unbelievable, man. Yeah. How were the Steely Dan sessions? You Steely you Dan sessions on? were fun. Okay, uh, Donald and Walter characters. We, me and Jeff, idolized them. Jeff was in Steely Dan for a while. You know, he was a drummer. So they heard about us. They wanted to start using session players instead of their band. So. Uh, Somehow we got a call. Jeff knew their guitar player, Denny Diaz, and they called Jeff and they were looking for a piano player, keyboard player that could play other keyboards. So they called me and I was on clavinet. It was on the Pretzel Logic album. It was a song called Night by Night that I played on. Such and I was playing, song. all I had to do was keep time on the clavinet because I was Billy Preston out of space had come out and I was all over the clavinet. That was my axe, you know. <laughs> Give me a wah wah pedal and a clavinet. And I'm, I'll kill it. You know what I mean? So I did that. Then they did an album after that was Katie Lied, which Jeff played on the whole thing. I played on Black Friday. That was me and Michael O'Mardian playing keyboards. And I played on Dr. Wu on that album, Man. on Katie Lied. But they were fun because Donald was so neurotic and anxious. He'd be pacing back and forth, singing the guide vocal. But the lyrics were so interesting. We were just like... Man, I dig, it's deep, you know? You had to concentrate, like, don't start listening to them singing because you'll fuck up, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And now, in hindsight, people kind of regard Steely Dan and those sessions and the yeah. work that was done as like kind of like, that's almost biblical. It's like it is. you can't touch it. That is. Did they have that reputation at the time when you were? They didn't. They didn't. They were kind of on the dark side and, and low key, and people didn't know about them. People, Steely Dan wasn't a big no-nip. They had Ricky Don't Lose That Number was the one song that they did. But it was other than that, they were kind of eclectic. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they were doing different kinds of stuff, jazzy kind of stuff back then. And people, they weren't mainstream. You know, the record companies didn't know what to do with them yeah. at all until Irving Azoff said, I know what to do with them. And he signed them, got Warner Brothers to sign them. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Out of, away from ABC Dunhill. You wow, know? man. You know? When did your interest in songwriting start to... I've always been in, I started in high school when Elton John first came out with his first record. I just wanted to be Elton John. I mean, that was my hero. Yeah. 
had glasses on, short hair, and performed rock and roll at the piano and stuff. So I just started writing songs, copying his kind of songs. And also, I had known, my dad did a lot of work with Jimmy Webb. I learned that's the guy I started copying, I mean, first, emulating his, trying to trying to emulate him. Before you He's, get into Elton, it's Jimmy Webb. That's yeah, your... Jimmy Webb. And I was doing, trying to play like and play like him and write like him before I made the Elton John connection. Mm. It was uh, it was my uh, apprenticeship, you know what I mean? That's what, what I learned. What was it like going to school and you're like doing it this was, kind of thing? I was doing, here, here's the trip, Okay. I was, me and Jeff and David Hungate were Sonny and Cher's rhythm section on the road. When I got out of high school, the first gig I had was touring with them, okay, on the road. And they were the, they had the Sonny and Cher show at the time. They were the biggest thing in the United States. They were getting like 100 grand a night. So me and Jeff, I joined, Jeff had already been with them for six months. He left high school early. And so my dad said, Okay, he's going to college next year. Now, how are we going to deal with that? And the and the Sunny and Cher people said we will fly him in to go to his classes when we're not playing and shit like that. And so they flew me in. I was going to USC a couple days a week. I was missing a bunch of classes, but I'd go to USC. I would do an Ironsides date, and I would fly back to Las Vegas to conduct for Sunny and Cher. Wow, that was a trip. I imagine you probably didn't care about going to USC. Was it just like no. your parents? I just had to do it. I had to do had it to, do to do fill it. up my grades and pass. What was it like hanging with Sonny and Cher? That, I mean, they, he, was, he was kind of her fall guy. You know what I mean? She would make jokes, and he was the little short Italian guy. But they were selling out these huge arenas. We met all these promoters, all the big Elton John promoters, all the big uh, agents and everything like that, because they were big time. They had their own jet. We were traveling on, Hugh, get this, Hugh Hefner's Playboy jet was the jet that, that we traveled taking on. you back and yeah, forth? with like bunny stewardesses, okay? And I was just out of high school. We were all just out of high school. And we were just like, you got to be friggin' like, it's off the scale. We were in shock. We were kind of in shock. Like, what do we do? Of course, Jeff, Jeff was an old hand. Jeff was like, <laughs> drummers, man, drummers putting the moves on everybody, you know what I yeah, mean? six months more experience than you guys. Oh, so man, he, he we was, were, I was newbie. <laughs> I was new meat, man. I was just like, yes, ma'am, you know? When Shit. did you first meet the Picaro brothers? I mean, because you, Jeff, and Steve, when I was When I was your... uh, 14 and a half. 14 and a half. 15, you know? And I met a Mike, and Steve was playing, always playing different instruments. He was playing a French horn. He played a cello. And Mike was playing, uh, started to play, Mike played some drums, and then Mike started playing, studying bass. And Mike was a great bass player. He was our high school bass player. Mm. And he was great. When did you meet Steve uh, Lukather? Andy Leeds, Steve's little younger brother, was hanging out with Steve Percaro and Steve Lukather and Mike Landau. They were all friends. So I was starting my band. And I was looking at like Dean Parks and Louis Shelton and some Larry Carlton. And Andy says, you need to check out these guitar players that are with Steve Bercaro's band. And so I went to Taft High School, which is right down there in Winnetka and Ventura. And I walked in and I heard this, somebody playing like Jimi Hendrix. I, th I, thought the, I thought the band was on a break and they put a record on and they were playing Hendrix. And I walked in there and Lukather was on stage and Landau. Landau was real short. He was a real short guy. And Lukather had on a monkey mask, okay, a rubber mask. 
and I couldn't see I couldn't see the, him that well because it was kind of smoky, and I was in the back of the thing. But I'm I'm looking, and this guy's looked like he's been in prison or something like that. And I get closer, and I realize he's he, and he was doing like leaping in the air like Pete Townsend, sliding on his knees, playing Johnny Be Good, singing it with a monkey with a with a monkey mask on. That was just Lukather, crazy guy. You know what I mean? Just he was silly, silly crazy. Okay. And he still is silly crazy. But uh, that's how I met him. And I was looking to John Mike Landau. And I thought Landau had a Stratocaster. Yeah. And I like Stratocasters. So I said, I think maybe the little guy that plays like Hendrix. And Lukather says, no, man. That, he says, the other guy's a star. We need a star in our band. And Jeff said, that's our guy right there. So Jeff picked him and I said, I don't have a problem with that. But he was new and he was oh, just shredding the whole time. I said, yeah, but he's got to play like on our records. Yeah. And Lukather says, he'll learn. We'll put him next to Carlton and Louis Shelton. He'll, he'll learn fast. And he did. Okay. Very quick study. You know, and then you hear him play on, uh, on Georgie Porgy and you hear him play on our first album. You know, he was already seasoned, yeah. you know what I mean, by yeah. 78, you know? In a way, like, uh, real fortuitous you guys got him because he did. It's so funny. Like, by the time you guys are really starting to take off, it's like, you know the Van Halens of the world are out there, yeah, right. and the and like the, the, you know this really kind of heavy guitar sound yeah. is, is is popular. Yeah, and you guys have Steve to kind of bring yeah. that to your and group. Steve was friends with all the heavy metal players. It was him and Eddie were best friends. Okay, immediately and were until when Eddie passed. You know, wow. So Eddie Van Halen was always hanging out with Luke and her. Luke and her had all the hammering shit that Eddie was doing down, and uh, and it was a uh, it was fun time because. You had to have a gunslinger, rock, a guitar player. We had the guy. Yeah. It was Lukather, you yeah. know? He was just shredding. He would rip all these guys. He had more chops than any guitar player in town. I mean, Larry Carlton, all these guys. Lukather was like Mahavishnu, uh, John, like John McLaughlin, McLaughlin kind yeah. of chops. That's what these guys had chops in uh, high school. Wow, you know, man. Unbelievable. It's amazing all the talent that you guys have. You guys, to this day, are able to still remain yeah. friends. I mean, oh, we are, some yeah. People, but, but, but I mean, because there's a world where you or or Steve or Lukather could have just been like, you know, I want to do my thing, yeah. you know, really. Well, we weren't, no one, everybody was, the bands were the thing at the time. They say, there's a saying now, back in the day when I was growing up, everybody was in bands. Yeah. Now they're singers. Yeah. Now it's all about singing. And I think it's great that everybody's singing now. I wish yeah. I wish I'd studied singing. My dad didn't want me to be a singer because he thought I would end up in a, in a piano lounge being a singer, piano player, entertainer. And that was the worst word at the time. My dad said, you don't want to become an entertainer. You want to be a musician. Really? And so I, I missed out on singing lessons and stuff, but which I ended up taking later on and stuff like well, that. Well, I was going to ask about the band. Like, Did you guys think of yourselves? Obviously, you guys are like incredible musicians, but yeah. did any of you guys think of yourselves as singers? Lukather could sing a little bit. He could sing like Georgie Porgy sang, yeah. I'll Be Over You, Won't Hold You Back. But And I could sing barely to just get some of my songs out. But, but we found cool a singer. that you guys would like trade off singing like you know it'd be steve it'd be lukather and uh into you into well that was the whole idea was well, i used as a model the beatles i like the beatles because you never got tired it wasn't one guy singing a solo record i don't care who the artist is a whole album of them i get a little bored yeah. i like fleetwood mac and i like the beatles because they had various diversity in their singing yeah you know, yeah. and so that's what I wanted to do with our band. We we did it on the first album. Those guys had never sung 
I'd never sung, I mean, really on a, on an album before. Right. And they, we all sang on the first album. And then you guys have a singer, Bobby Kimball. And then we had, a, we had to get a singer because they, they were kept going, well, who's your singer? They really, the, before they sign the paper, they want to know, do you have a singer? And a band that I had been co-produced called SS Fools had a singer named Bobby Kimball, and they broke up. And I said, let's try this guy out. And he came in, and we, I played Hold the Line, and he just grabbed the lyrics, and we started ripping Hold the Line. And it sounded, the first time we played it, it sounded like the record. Okay? Really? With him singing and us playing. So everybody's looking around the room. We're looking at each other like, we're a band. Yeah. We're a band. We, yeah. we, we knew we were a band, you know? We have to take another quick break, and then we'll be back with more from my conversation with David Pache. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Here's the rest of my conversation with David Bache. Let's jump ahead to you reconnect with Quincy to do yeah. Thriller. Do you know, was it Michael? Was it Quincy? Was it the both? How did you guys end up getting... Involved. I ended up getting in because I had, Steve Bercaro had been doing programming synthesizers for David Foster and Greg Gaines mm. and all Quincy's people. I wasn't in that club yet. So Steve, what are you doing? He goes, I'm doing a Quincy Jones day. I said, you know what? 
I want to go do a Quincy Jones date, so I'm going to I'm going to be your assistant, and I want to carry a piece of gear in to get in to the get the door. So <laughs> I got the, the door. <laughs> so I got in the door. I think they were doing Donna Summers. I think it was State of State Independence. State of Independence. That was yeah. Steve. All Steve Ricaro did that, and I was kind of playing for him because he would be the major programmer, but I could play really pretty well. So set up the stuff, set up the sounds, and Swedeen would say, Steve, play something. And he, Steve would say, well, that's David's here. Dave, play something. And I started playing, and Quincy would walk in the room and go, wow, that's nice. What are you doing? Are you, can you stay? Can you hang out a little bit? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> and ever since then, I did the Donna Summers, James Ingram, and uh, then I got called on Thriller, you know what I mean? Because I was part of Quincy's club. And so State of Independence, Quincy later said, and I, I mean, you, know, you can demur if you want, but Quincy later said that the, the Billie Jean bass line was a rip of that State of Independence programming, that thing that you and Takara, Really, I didn't know you said that. Yeah. But that could have been, that could have been, you know. Slow down. That Now that I think about it, it is, I'm going to tell Steve that today. Yeah, because let me know what he says. because I'm going mean, to tell him. He's, I mean, that's He raced, we brought all of our synthesizers down there. I mean, there was a room full of synthesizers, and Steve was doing that live. It was, it had the drum machine, it had uh, uh, all the synths pumping, and basically the whole record was done with Steve Ricaro uh, doing synthesizers on his uh, microcomposer. So you guys basically play on Human Nature. Uh, yeah. I mean, you guys do, do you, uh, a number of you play on a number of different things yeah. on Thriller, but Human yeah. Nature really is like, it's like, that's yeah. it's Toto, essentially. Yeah. Are you mad at a Steve when he takes a song like Human Nature to Michael no. instead? hell no. What a fucking song. No, no, because Toto would have never done that. So totally. Really? No, I don't, they may have, but Steve, we were we were off the road, and Quincy was looking for songs, and so I sent a I don't know what I sent in, but I sent in a cassette, and I had on the back of my cassette, that's been they had those super scope tape machines that when they'd get to the end, it would start playing the other side of the cassette automatically, right. and so it jumped to the other side and played Steve Ricardo's demo for him, and he was like, why, why? Tell him that it's human nature. And Quincy dug it and she played it for Michael. And they were just like, they cut it, you know? Wow. wow. That was like the last song that went on the record, you know? How, how did you, because I want to talk about this. I'm curious how you and Steve found how to coexist in terms of as keyboard players, synth players. He would come up with something and say, Dave, I need, your, I need some magic on this. I need you to, I need an intro. Like he said on human nature. I've got the chords, but I, I need an intro. So, uh, I think those are the chords he played me for the intro. And I, from Jimmy Seals, I had been used to doing finger picking guitar parts and, and translating them to piano so I could do, you know. I would cross hands and do. So I did a little Jimmy Seals kind of thing for human nature and I went. That's the intro to Human Nature that I came up with. That is one of the coolest. <laughs> that is one of the coolest. And then he had the song, and every time that comes up, it goes into that part. You know what I mean? It's so beautiful. Yeah. What was it like being in the studio with Michael? With Michael, Michael was great in the studio. He was a perfectionist, and he just believed in you painting. He came up to me. Here's a typical Michael Jackson thing. He'd say, 
I want you to think of Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. You have a total blank canvas. And if you need a choir, or you need an orchestra, you need whatever you need, just do it. Just wow. come up and think with it. Now, this wasn't during Thriller, though. This was after Thriller. Right. Michael, we continued working Long with Michael. Bad. But working with Michael, I got in there one day, and I was working on Billie Jean, which I didn't end up using my parts. Nope, none of my parts. But I did it with Michael, and he would listen to what you're playing, and he kind of let a couple of little mistakes go by. And I stopped him, and I said, Michael, listen, I'm, I'm a perfectionist, and I want to make sure that all this stuff is perfect when we put it on there. So... In the interim, he he liked the fact that I wanted perfection on his record, and he'd call me in and say, "I want I want you to come in and listen to my vocal that I'm doing, and uh, tell me if it's tell me if it's good." And it kind of got me in trouble with Quincy a little bit because Quincy was there, and he goes, "Quincy goes, oh, Michael, is that what do you think?" And he goes, uh, "Ask David Page what he thinks on the Human Nature vocal." And I'm like, "Uh." Uh-uh. <laughs> And Quincy just gave me the look, gave me the look, like, oh, really? You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, man, you know. So we got that straightened out. And uh, and then Michael was great to work with. Anybody that worked with him, he was just like, Jeff did beat Jeff. They they came to Jeff, and all they had was these drum cases that went, and they were singing the line, I think, in there. And then Steve and Jeff played all the instruments on it. Steve Lukather yeah. played bass, played rhythm guitar. Eddie did the solo, and Jeff played the drums on it. You know, did Lukather want to do the solo? Or how did it end up that? Why did no, Lukather they do just, the solo? He was lucky to play on it. He was happy to play. He was on just happy it, you know? to play on it. Yeah. And then they said they were trying to get Ed Van Halen, which was Luke's friend. Luke's like, right on. You know, Ed didn't want to do it at first because they had Van Halen had a no session band role. You can't play on other people's records. So Eddie called him and said, this is Quincy Jones. He goes, yeah, sure. And he hung up on him. Okay. Ed did. You know what I mean? And uh, he said, no, really? Seriously? You know? So they he sent a tape in and they flew it in. I, I don't know where. He, he just soloed and they just took a piece of it and dropped it in wow, on there. You know? Wow. Total four, you guys spent a lot of time in the studio. Yeah. yeah we spent a lot of time all the time. So that's another year, man, where it's like if 78, your first record's coming out, all these big hits, and you got Cheryl Lynn's record out at the same yeah. time. This is like you got Total Four. Yeah, you we're got cooking. Thriller. Uh, all, the, all the burners are on, you know? Unbelievable. Yeah. You got four records behind you. Yeah. Bunch of hits. Yeah. I mean. We're doing sessions and touring and doing our Total records at the time, you know? So it was just kind of a revolving door at the recording studio, Sunset Sound. We'd see guys that were working on it. Thriller, what are you doing? Oh, I'm working with Quincy today. Well, we'll be there in a little bit. And, uh, you know. How did Sunset Sound become your home, which is one of the great studios? It was one of the great LA. studios. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we could basically work everywhere. I mean, we did Thriller at Westlake, yeah. the whole thing, you right. know? We did Toto's rec- first record at, at Studio 55, which was uh, ended, ended up becoming Richard Perry's studio. Mm. But uh, we just liked uh, Sunset Sound as a record recording place, and that was during the Hydra record we got started working at Sunset Sound again. Such a cool record. And we loved playing there. We loved that. That was a real progressive yeah. uh, music. We were trying to push ahead. Well, now that we had been, been had a hit album, we kind of wanted to play some serious concert stuff here. You don't get into the way we would sound if we went out live and not just playing 
Pop, Georgie Porgy and God. So the first record was like, let's let's craft a record. Let's craft Focus a record and record. let's find an audience. Yeah. So we did a whole lot, a lot of different kinds of things to find out. I know that there's got to be a single in there somewhere. Yeah. You know, and sure enough, the record company grabbed hold of the line. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, little did I know. You know. Yeah. But then Hydra was like, let's. Hydra was more more. We were listening to Genesis at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Peter Gabriel. Yeah. And these progressive English groups that were do- doing just blowing our minds, you know? Wow. So we wanted to get more progressive and more musical, you know, because so, we were all just making music basically for ourselves and our friend musicians. So we could get together and smoke a little bit and, and listen to music, you know? Yeah. And, and we, we wanted to have something interesting to play them, you know, because everybody else was bringing in all this stuff that they're, they're doing. And it was like, you know, real, real musical stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. Did you guys run into Prince at all? Because I know he was hunkered down at Sunset Sound, Jeff too. Jeff ran into Prince one time, and he was down there before we were down there, uh, uh, during we were down yeah, there. Right but, on uh, the I, yeah, I didn't run into him. I think Jeff ran into him one time. But uh, he was down there with James Newton Howard working on his first album. Ray Parker, who's my neighbor. Who's Ray my, Parker's your neighbor? Yeah, down the, down, down the hill. It's a bad man. And he's my, like my best friend. We grew up together. We both... He came out from Detroit when he was 19, and I started working when I was 18 and 19. So we've been friends since we've been real young. Amazing. So uh, Prince saw Ray Parker's had a studio in his house, and Prince said, I want that. So Ray built Prince's first studio. Really? Yeah. So Ray set uh, Prince up, and then I heard later on that Prince really liked Lukather as a guitar player, and uh, I just I've gained so much respect for him lately. Uh, hearing how he plays guitar and the shows the acoustic work, and he's just a, he's he was a real talent, yeah. you know. Man, you guys were around some of the yeah. coolest, greatest. I yeah. mean, the era of music you guys existed yeah. in. Because to your era, point you know? again, the left, like the what what remained of the jazz greats, like you yeah. said, Oscar Peterson came to your house to work on yeah. to, to check out synthesizers. synthesizers he did. Because the, mean, the Roland, the, the guy who invented a bunch of Roland stuff, was living at my house, okay? Foster called me up and said, "We I got a guy from Canada named Ralph Bike. He works for Roland. Are you guys interested in this? We said, send him over. And he would just build stuff for us. And so he became friends with Oscar because Oscar's Canadian too. Yeah. So he brought Oscar Peterson over. We were like, I called James Newton Howard. So you got to get over here right now, man. This is going to get serious here, you know. And of course, I didn't have any. I didn't take any pictures during the time, yeah. and I don't have any pictures from it. You Did know? you play on this piano? No, no. I have a piano downstairs. Oscar played on. Okay. It's a nine foot Baldwin SD10. He looks at my piano and goes, "Nice box." You know? <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, man. man. How did you guys change as people? before having those hits and having the hit i mean did at any point did it get competitive but not amongst you guys but with other groups did you did you feel like ah we want hits or did you feel like you want to compete on the live i mean yeah what what was well it's so funny because after like years later i talked to some people the recession guys danny korchmeyer yeah. danny cooch uh wadi wachtel and they told me we were so pissed off at you guys when you came out with hold the line they go that's a goddamn doo-wop song and we should have played the, we should have played the solo on that record not Lukather and everything like that because Lukather played like a, a Brian May kind of queen he solo did, yeah. on it you know he shredded yeah. it you know yeah. and they were going to play like they wanted to treat it like a doo-wop song that's you know what's what cool mean? about you guys is that you could do that <laughs> but then have Lukather do like a yeah. Brian May we were mixing John we were mashing up genres you know at the time it's know? the coolest thing about yeah. you guys yeah. man and later on we, me and Luke we kind of were competitive with the songwriting okay 
Okay. He bring in this, and I'd be like, I still today can't write. He writes every time he breaks up with somebody, he would write a great ballad, mm. a love ballad, and uh, he just he's great. He kills great, him, great and he sings it, and he sings them too. You know, how did you guys work that out? Between, I mean, there's so many people in the group who could sing the song, so many right. people who could write the song. Right. We would tr- listen to the best songs. Here's anybody has a song, bring it in, and we'll listen to it. Now let's listen to whose voice fits that. Yeah. And so each of us would try. You know, everybody tried to sing Africa. Yeah. They just couldn't spit all the words out. And I was, I ended up singing the song that I wrote. You know, yeah, well, you had written it, so probably written, the words came know, a little easier to you. You know, so as usual, the band s- says to me. Next time you're going to write a number one single, make sure that you're not the singer on it. Make sure our lead singer sings the whole thing. I'm like, guys, I didn't know. You Did know? you guys really not know Africa would be no, as big as it no was? No idea. Really? No idea. Really? That was the last song. That was the 11th hour song that we had the whole album done. And we just started experimenting with, well, here's maybe a song that, and they used to say it was a joke. Dave, save this for your solo record, which there was none, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And, or, or maybe for the next album. This is a good song. Did it bum you out? Or they no, this, oh, no, 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 no. This is our, our just fucking sense around. of humor, yeah. just fucking with me, yeah. you know? Yeah. So we started experimenting with around making a loop. We, we knew we had time because we'd already done our album. So we got in the studio and made a loop, a drum loop with Lenny Castro and Jeff Carl. And then I put on a CS80 thing. And we start building it little by little, and it's just everybody was making their own parts up, and it just uh, came came to being, you know. Wow. And we were like, well, okay, this is the last cut. It's kind of different, kind of world musicy. And then they called from New York. Sony called and says they're playing it in a disco, a big disco. It's a big hit in New York. Africa is, wow. and this uh, it started going around the United States. People started picking it up, and so it just cool. gained momentum. So cool. You guys have these incredible pop songs I mean, we're talking about africa rosanna songs like that and then the solos that you're playing yeah. how did you pull back because i mean i would love to hear like an eight minute solo oh, yeah. of you oh, i mean how did you guys contain yourself me, the in first the studio couple times we played rosanna we jammed on the end there you did know? you okay. you just hear the little you hear a little short one i hear the short i'm like yeah, i want to we said well, we're gonna keep it short this time guys you know what i mean keep the ending there you know what i mean get it all in but that was that went longer that fade out probably went another two minutes. You know oh what I mean? We just faded love, it out. You I would know. Love to hear that. Yeah, I would yeah. Love to hear Me that. too. I don't know how you guys did it. As like, there's not many groups who could be as musically inclined as you guys, yeah. and also, yeah. but also, we like kind of know, like, okay, we got to do the short version. Yeah, on shorter this. version. That, that one's well, we that's had, amazing, but that's it, not it. That's the reason we just decided instead of forming a group, we got offers to form our out of our high school band to sign a deal, and we turned it down because we said we want to go in and learn how to make records. So that we don't come out, we don't learn on on our first record. Yeah. We're just barely learning how to make records here. So we each went off our different directions and we did a lot of sessions and gained all this knowledge. So we were ready to. We were like co-producing ourselves by the band members by their just their experience. You did know? you learn about a lot about songwriting, playing on other people's songs, oh, yeah. learning charts and oh, things? Yeah. Like I learned a lot about what I didn't want to do because I kept I would try and make them a little more my songs i try and rearrange them and using my changes but everybody else wanted to use these jazzy chords oh it's like and i was going for the you know, and everybody else was, that's what foster and graden and those guys were always at the earth wind and fire yeah they were everybody was trying to be earth wind and fire at the time okay and so was i so we yeah. all were you yeah know? yeah you know 
That's kind of earth windy right there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Diamonds and Rust, Joan Baez, last Oh, I'll yeah, you about. know about that record. How right. did you end up on that? I knew the producer. I'd worked with him, a guy named David Kirschenbaum. And he hired me. And the great thing was that I got to play with Joe Sample. Joe Sample and me played together on that. I played piano, and he played Roxy Chord, I think, or electric piano, Roxy Chord. And they had Larry Carlton, Dean Parks, Jim Gordon on wow. drums. And I just got to play on that record. And uh, it was fun. Joan Baez was great. We did, I had done a, a midnight special with her, with our band. She ended up using our band for backup band on Midnight Special. But a uh, funny story about uh, Steely Dan, Walter Becker heard the Diamonds and Rust album and saw that Larry Carlton had arranged it. And that's why he called Carlton to arrange the Royal Scam album because he said if he they can make Joan Baez sound this good, they're going to be able to arrange our stuff. I mean, and that was the that was the deal. They the, that was the album that they th got turned on to Larry Carlton. You know? Dude, I mean that's the song. Joan Baez says that's her 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 best song. Yeah, and, it was great. And it Bob was Dylan fun. even was moved. She was like the Dylan's counterpart. Yeah. at the time. Yeah. yeah, and he was moved to call her and tell her this is incredible. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah. what a what yeah. a treat. God, we could talk for another two hours. I you just know wanted, I just wanted, yeah, I wanted to go through the room and just ask about everything you got if, here. You know, I'm gonna show you downstairs real quick. It'll be awesome, and maybe we'll do it again, man. If yeah, you, I think we should do it again. You yeah, know? cool. Thanks so much to David Page for inviting us into his home and playing for us. You can hear all of our favorite Toto songs and other stuff David's played on on a playlist at BrokenRecordPodcast.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash broken record podcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced and edited by Leah Rose with marketing help from Eric Sandler and Jordan McMillan. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like this show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians.
Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.